difficult to treat illness, long duration. Oftentimes you're going in and out of treatment before you get to that point where you're, you know, in remission. So I think that can sometimes be the hardest part, realizing that there's going to be a lot of recidivism and you're going to be seeing patients a lot, but don't ever give up hope. Hello, welcome to The Seasoned RD, a podcast connecting newer professionals in the field of eating disorders to those of us who have been around for a while. I'm your host, Beth Harrell, a certified eating disorders registered dietitian and supervisor. And I'm Abby Brown, a registered dietitian who is newer to the field. I think of myself as a well-seasoned cast iron skillet with wisdom and experience, yet always ready for something new. And I think of myself as an Instapot with innovation and a fresh perspective. This podcast brings both to the table to share ingredients, recipes, and techniques of past and present so we can all be our best for the future. The kettle is heating up. A skillet is on simmer. So join us around the table for true professional nourishment. Abby, ready to stir the pot? Let's do it. All right. Welcome back to the Seasoned RD Podcast, or welcome to the Seasoned RD Podcast if this is the first time you're joining us. We are here today with Dr. Dennis Gibson, internal medicine and specialist in eating disorders, and his passion for this field is palpable. Eating disorders aren't something that medical students are commonly exposed to in medical school. I do think it's getting better and you can hear towards the end what his program is doing to help that. And we have good discussion here about standards for insurance, how that misses the mark for good eating disorders and malnutrition care. The third voice in here besides my regular co-host, dear Abby, is Dr. Michaela Voss who joins us in our medical series. And we can link back to her episode. Dr. Gibson talks about muscle loss and weakness as a measure of malnutrition, putting out a call to all professionals, including RDs. We can be well-intentioned, but if we are not adapting our profession to eating disorders, we can cause harm in our messaging. I learned about rhabdo, (laughs) weight disruption. We talk about weight suppression, interoception, and finally we wrap up with things like seizures from thiamine deficiency and how easy it is to reach out to providers at this very highest level of care for eating disorders. If you have a client patient who is medically compromised because of their eating disorder or because of malnutrition, just reach out. You'll hear how Abby describes how simple it is to even just get the consult. I hope you enjoy this time with Dr. Dennis Gibson. Welcome, Dr. Dennis Gibson, to the Seasoned RD Podcast. Hello, everybody. Thanks for having me. Our acute finale. We're so excited to chat with you. We'll ease you into it with some icebreakers. My first one for you, mountains or beach? Ooh, so that one's tough because I actually moved here from Florida. I went to residency down at University of South Florida, chose them because I thought I would love the beach. I think I was there a total of twice the entire three years. So I'm going to have to go with the mountains. Makes sense. That makes sense now. You're in Denver. (laughs) What about this one? Breakfast or dinner? Oh, easily breakfast. Oh, that was easy. How come? What makes breakfast so special? I don't know. Breakfast foods are just so good for lack of better way to describe it. I have to agree. Okay. (laughs) And audio book or paper book? Paper book. I struggle to listen to podcasts and things like that. Hopefully those listening in don't have that same issue. 
you know, when you mentioned that about the beach and that you really only were there, what, how many times over two Maybe years? twice. Maybe twice. <laughs> I remember when my husband traveled for work, one of his areas was Hawaii and people were like, you're so lucky. And he's like, I'm in a hospital the whole time. <laughs> yeah. I don't like, it's not vacation. <laughs> All right. Well, you are a medical doctor. Correct. And a lot of our listeners are in school or just learning from us about eating disorders. And so I'm kind of bringing the human piece to this. Can you bring us back to your board exam? What do you remember about that day? My board exam, so I'm trained in internal medicine. I originally had planned on doing psychiatry for most of undergrad and actually most of medical school. And then I kind of made the flip last minute. So I think that's part of what draws me to eating disorders. It's that perfect marriage of mental health and the somatic issues that we deal with as internists. I don't recall about the week leading up to my actual board exam itself. It's a big blur, lots of coffee, lack of sleep. I passed, so we're all good, but I don't remember much. (laughs) Okay, but that's all I needed to know. Lots of coffee, lack of sleep leading into it. It's a big Some possible PTSD going on. Some PTSD, definitely. I'm starting to shake a little bit, yeah. (laughs) Okay. Well, how did you get into then internal medicine and eating disorders? So again, internal medicine, I as I was doing my rotations, I sort of had a love for everything I was learning. You know, not anything bored me. Just everything kind of got me excited and kept me interested. Eating disorders is not something anyone's ever exposed to in medical school and residency. We actually, I went to Southern Illinois University for my med school and we had a dedicated eating disorder unit. I think I spent all of three hours on that unit the entire four years of medical school. I probably had one or two lectures the entire time I was there. So it was pretty new to me. When I moved to Denver, the plan was to do academics. I wanted to be like a program director for um, you know, a residency, um, a lot of education and teaching. And then about six months in, I met the Dr. Mailer, and he uh, convinced me this is what I wanted to do. Again, fell in love with it after the first day. So <laughs> bit by the bug. <laughs> what yes. was it that that drew you in after like after 24 hours of, of being there? What was your mind thinking and and where were you going from there? Again, I think I very quickly realized this is that mental health piece I was kind of missing that I was planning on doing for most of my life. So, and we're dealing with such medically compromised patients at acute, incredibly low weighted, all the medical complications that come along with that. So I quickly saw that this is that perfect marriage of both fields. I also very quickly realized that this was a population of patients that they could not really get help anywhere else. And so we were sort of filling that niche that nowhere else could do. Totally. You know, that's so interesting because you said this, you found, I'm going to go back to a statement that someone made, like, aren't you going to get bored specializing in eating disorders? But what you said about everything's interesting about the body, the internal medicine, and then that marriage of the mental health and the body. Have you gotten bored yet? I have not. No. <laughs> These patients keep me on my toes. Even if the medical things seem to be going smoothly, they like to throw these curveballs with the mental health issues. So it's, it's constantly keeping you on your toes. And is this medical? Is this psychiatric? What are we dealing with here? 
And at Acute, since they're with us for such a long amount of time, we get to form really good relationships with them. So, and I think those relationships really are crucial in terms of the, the care and progress that we actually make on our unit. What is the average length of stay? It's a little over three weeks, about three and a half weeks right now. We try to stay consistent with the Red Sea guidelines. So trying to discharge patients, you know, 70%, a little before 70%, but they come in just so malnourished that they need that amount of time to stay with us. You know, we got to talk with Megan, the dietitian there at Acute, and she was sharing with us about atypical anorexia when you just said 70%, that there was someone who would have been by all regular standards, 120% of ideal, which she also admitted that a ideal body weight is antiquated. Those were her words. So how do you, how do you help? I mean, how do you do that? No, that's a really good point. And I probably should clarify that we use those percent IBW solely because that's what the insurance requires of us. And there's not really a better standard. I'm constantly fighting with the insurance companies with the patients who are outside those, you know, higher, those standards. And it's tough because they just can't realize that somebody who is you know, above 70% is at just as much risk, if not more risk than someone who is below that percent IBW because they can't get the help they need. They're still running into these medical issues with their rate of weight loss, their weight suppression, their weight disruption. And so I almost struggle even more with those patients because again, just the society standards right now, the medical standards, the insurance standards don't have a good way to define that. Are you seeing more of that population at acute? Are they becoming in sick? I think we're seeing a little bit more of it only because there's a better definition of it. There's a lot more, uh, there's just a lot more thought about atypical anorexia now. So I, I don't think we're seeing a higher amount of it. I think we can just better define what we are seeing here. But for the most part, when we have these atypical AN patients per the DSM definition, I'm having many more conversations with the insurance companies about those patients. Yeah, because you also have a smaller part of your unit that's the Center for Malnutrition. So it doesn't yeah. have to be an eating disorder diagnosis. And, and these folks are experiencing malnutrition in a huge way. And so that's what you're doing is looking at the medical complications. What, what are some, so I run into this problem a lot too. I think we probably all do. What are some talking points that you use with the insurance companies to help fight their coverage? It's tough right now. I think one of the biggest points I use is that they have reached out to multiple other treatment centers who have refused to care for them for various reasons. They have continued to lose weight with the care they've been at. But that in itself is one of the issues because most of the research that's been done at this point with the atypical AN has been done in adolescence. So it's hard for me to apply that to adults. And there's only been a few studies, even in the adolescence, that look at these medical complications. It's largely, you know, heart rate, blood pressure, these cardiovascular complications. There's a couple studies looking at phosphorus, but but it's it's tough. It's tough. I think most of the time when I end up getting approval from the insurance. It's just because they are realizing that the patient's continuing to dwindle on an outpatient basis or at the other levels of care. I was going to switch a little bit. I'm curious if what you've seen coming in 
has changed pre-COVID and post-COVID. I know that we had, now that we're a couple of years past the, the pandemic, if you will, if you did see a change, has that change sustained or are things returning back to how they were pre-COVID? I think things are slowly returning back to pre-COVID. The biggest change that we saw was many more patients coming in at a much lower body weight than with historic scene. Um, talking to the patients, there was concern about, you know, going and having medical visits. And so I don't think it was as easy for people to, the caregivers, providers to see that their weight was actually declining quite a bit. And so when they would finally reach out to acute, I mean, they'd be 50%, 55%. They'd be, you know, on basically death's door at that point. As we've kind of gotten further past COVID, I think all the fears around COVID, and we've had many more of these patients going back to their outpatient providers, better ways to kind of monitor their body weights and vitals. We've seen the patients, I think, a little bit returning back to their pre-COVID weights, a little bit, quote unquote, healthier than what we saw before. And uh, we're seeing, I think, when COVID first started, we seen a, started seeing a lot more referrals from outpatient teams. And it seems like that's kind of going back to the pre-COVID levels too, because patients are being more willing, I think, to go to residentials and kind of higher levels of care before they need us. Yeah. The pandemic is one huge piece of it. I'm just so glad. And I always, I say this in my opening, I'm surprised when people don't know about acute because it is that resource that, that when we're so worried about someone that we don't have to eat up their behavioral health benefits and they can come see you and then you can fight the fight with the insurance company (laughs) on, uh, yeah, (laughs) we can take a picture (laughs) boxing gloves on and, um, (laughs) but yeah, that is that resource that, that some people don't know about. And, it's hard for us in the outpatient world to get our clients to agree to even making that phone call. You know, when they can hear the care, the compassion that's happening there, I think that that helps a little bit. And then also that you are fighting the fight, I guess. We are absolutely fighting the fight. I think there is some trepidation from patients who've never been to acute, just from things you hear on, you know, the internet. But when you actually talk with the patients at the end of their stays, you know, it's almost all positive gratitude towards the care they've received. They realized that we provided care that really they weren't able to get elsewhere while they've continued to kind of decline. Ultimately, all we want is to see these patients be successful so that they can go on to residential. Yes, go on to these other levels of care. And then they're not going back and forth to hospitals trying to deal with these medical concerns. You know, the medical concerns are hopefully largely taken care of at that point. So you can really focus on the mental health piece of it. So I'm going to shift a little bit again. My brain keeps thinking about how you said your original plan was to do education with the residents and and the medical education piece over at Denver. And then you got sucked into here. So I just keep thinking, wow, there's so much education that needs to be done with eating disorders in the medical community as well as in the patient population. How have you incorporated your passion for education with this current career you have or are hoping to? Yeah, good question. Appreciate that. We have started 
we didn't even really have rotations for residents on this unit when I first started on acute seven years ago. So we now have uh, rotations for psychiatrists, uh, internal medicine doctors, family practice docs. We don't really have one set up for peds since we aren't seeing that pediatric population. We started to see a lot more visiting residents coming from outside programs from even Colorado, visiting on acute and getting exposure to this. We obviously are always trying to do talks, WebEx or in-person, grand rounds, et cetera, to other treatment centers, other academic centers about what eating disorders do to the body and the mind. Those are just a few of the things that we've really tried to incorporate. We also have physical therapy residents, or I shouldn't say residents, but students rotating on acute now, occupational therapy students rotating on acute. And we've talked about just trying to incorporate many more learners on the unit because, again, they can get exposure to this. They can then go out in the world and talk about what they experienced at acute and just get the word out there as well. We just talked with Dr. Delia Aldrich, who's a psychiatrist at Eating Recovery Center. And you know, there wasn't a text for these things, for the psychiatry. And so this, just having that residency, even when you started seven years ago and not having it then, but having it now, the ship is slowly turning and we have this. When you mentioned OT and speech, like when we were at IADEP and I was chatting with some of the folks from acute and hearing about needling and other just super creative treatment modalities that you all use? We do a lot of, I guess, innovative things on this unit when it comes to that. Yeah. I I don't think people realize how severe the, um, you know, the muscle loss happens on the body with this level of malnutrition. Many of our patients, you know, struggle to lift their head off the bed when they come to the queue. We test hand grip on all patients and they're Hand grip numbers are single digits when, you know, you look at our typical demographic, they should be about 30. So the amount of muscle loss and weakness that comes along with this is significant. And then the occupational therapists really do a lot with that mind body connection and that interoception that I think is lost with eating disorders, trying to reconnect those two, trying to get back in tune with the, you know, the feelings from the body and Exactly like you said. Yeah, we do a lot of crazy things that I think people really like to hear about because it is very innovative. And we talk all the time about how treatment is not a one size fits all, but sometimes it almost feels that way. You know, we increase weight, you go to the next option or outpatient or whatever it is. And trying these different modalities, I can totally see makes such a huge difference in in recovery, it would be great if we could, if that could start to trickle down and like acute is top level. And (laughs) and then we go to the residential programs. And so getting some of those things involved would be like a game changer. Yeah. We need you to continue the research and publish those articles so that it can be supported. Absolutely. Continue the research. I do want to start to get some outcomes data, looking at a lot of these things that the occupational therapists and physical therapists do as well, so that we can hopefully say, Look at how much of an impact this is truly having on on the care. So I'm thinking, though, from an outpatient medical provider perspective, if you're telling me that these patients could be really weak, should I be getting certain labs? Should I be looking at CK levels? Are they at risk at rhabdo? Like, should I get them into physical therapy or how do I know it's safe? Very tough. I think it's hard to answer that question as a one size fits all. 
it largely depends, I think, on where the body weight is. You know, if you're doing too much exercise at a low enough weight, you're really going to impact bone density, break those bones down even more. So it's hard to say, you know, I, I think these patients probably would benefit from a PT consult, but at the same time, I don't think a lot of physical therapists, again, have a knowledge of eating disorders similar to dietitians who don't have a knowledge of eating disorders. You might be giving advice that is, you know, well-intentioned, but not necessarily adaptive to what our patients truly need in the moment. So I, I think I have to answer that question with a grain of salt that probably, but I'm not sure. Okay, we're going to take a quick break to recognize the sponsor of this episode. I'm always surprised and saddened when people don't know about this resource. It is that kind of a resource that's truly life-changing. Acute Center for Eating Disorders and Severe Malnutrition is your partner in assessment, referral, and treatment for patients at risk for refeeding syndrome, as well as those experiencing other dangerous medical complications of malnutrition, of purging, and excessive exercise. Acute is the only dedicated inpatient medical stabilization program in the country with resources, environment, and experience to treat the most medically severe cases of eating disorders. This life-saving care is covered by medical insurance, which then preserves the valuable behavioral health benefits for patients as they continue the recovery process. When they are medically stable, patients discharge to the appropriate next level of care back to you, typically their established eating disorder care team or referring IP res program. So all care at acute is overseen by Dr. Phil Mailer, the world's leading expert in medical treatment of eating disorders. Expertise and experience matter when seeking medical care for severe eating disorders. You deserve the unmatched understanding that Dr. Mailer and the acute team bring to each and every case. And I wanted to tell you, I put in the show notes, there is a there's a link to a webinar, Journey Through the Levels of Care, which is so important. This is the hardest thing for us as clinicians is to help our client be ready to take that level of care that we know they need. Um, March 23rd at 9 a.m. Mountain Time is when you will want to register before that. That's when this webinar is available to you. So information is in the show notes. Yeah, and let's let's talk about that exercise component because that's one of those areas that's always a hot topic on how soon can they go back? What can they do? What is safe? What is not? And so I'm thinking about it from a bone perspective that to keep your bones strong, strength training is really important. But if their muscles are so weak or they're not fueling properly, it might be dangerous. So how do you figure out what that balance is? We say they need to follow up with their outpatient primary care doctor before they get the stamp of approval for that. And again, even that is kind of met with, okay, when is that stamp of approval to start being able to do these things again? I think it depends on how uh, severe their eating disorder thoughts are. I think it does depend on where their body weight is, because again, if they're still below that point where their body's functioning in that allostatic place, all their hormones are turned back on, they're at an appropriate point where their body likes to be, that weight that their body likes to be, you're probably doing more harm to the bones and to the body by doing some of these more aggressive exercise regimens. So Dr. Voss, you've used this, you said rhabdo, what is that? Or Dr. Gibson, he, you shook your head yes. Go ahead, Dr. What is Voss. that? What is that? Oh, no, this is <laughs> I'm clueless. <laughs> 
I'll take it away. So doc, yeah, rhabdo yeah. is this condition where the muscles basically break down. There's a lot of things that can cause that dehydration, overuse. I actually had a patient in residency who developed this from P90X. I don't know if you guys remember those P90X oh, yes. programs. Oh my gosh. She did the upper body routine too much and her arms basically came into the hospital. She was severely swollen and severe rhabdomyolysis. So you have to it can be a life-threatening condition. You have to treat it with fluids. You have to keep a close eye on their electrolytes. It's tough in our population because they're, again, muscle mass is so reduced. They have such a reduced amount of muscles that using CK probably isn't a good identifier for people in rhabdomyolysis. As of right now, the data doesn't suggest that these patients are in significant rhabdomyolysis with their weight loss. But again, a lot of those labs that are monitored, you wouldn't expect the CK, the creatine, creatinine kinase to be high because that comes from muscles and the muscles are already broken down and reduced. Thank but to answer the that. question, no, it doesn't seem like rhabdomyolysis is a significant concern, even at this level of care. Saying that though, we have both seen it, right? Absolutely. So it can happen. And I, I had a, a male cross-country runner at the end of the race, dropped down, have a seizure and had CK levels in the thousands. Yep. And so it, and it was all from an eating disorder. So it's there, but, but probably not the thing that's going to present itself in the outpatient world or the most acute concern that you would have. Yes, absolutely. That's what I hear from you. Yeah. I mean, and you mentioned the hand grips. That's something that dietitians can understand. <laughs> and it's a very simple screening, right? So when we're talking about weight and not not focusing so much on weight as the thing, like the insurance companies do, that's one piece that can help dietitians know that malnutrition might be present. As well as rapid weight loss, we have mild, moderate, severe ratings over time. So the, even using the hand grips there, I think that Megan mentioned, there are other people within the hospital system who specialize in malnutrition. So she can lean on those dietitians. I imagine that happens with the medical groups too. So how would you utilize that in the outpatient or with as an RD? What are you talking about, Beth? Would you like have a hand grips thing and have them squeeze it? But how yes. do you interpret it? How do you know what's normal for them? <laughs> That's, that was my question because I'm not a strong person. I'm not an athletic person. And so my hand grip might be, might be not as strong as someone who, yeah, uh, maybe, maybe Dr. Gibson will be able to say this better because I don't have one of them, but I know dietitians are using those in the offices. There are, I guess, standards for age and gender for what the hand grip should be. It's a range. So I would expect, you know, if you're a healthy individual, again, for that age and gender, you should still be within that range. So Beth, I'm sure you would meet the range for what would be appropriate. Yeah, I wouldn't be single digits, <laughs> even though I'm kind of not <laughs> athletic. <laughs> I was smiling when you were asking that question, because I actually go back and forth with Megan quite a bit when some of our patients, she can't get them to meet any sort of definition or criteria for malnutrition. I don't know if you guys chatted about that at all. No. And it's frustrating because to need our level of care, they basically say if they're, they understand this better than I do, but if their weight has been standard for some amount of uh, unchanged for some amount of time, even if it's low, it can sometimes be difficult to get them to meet criteria for a various uh, level of malnutrition. Yeah. 
which again ties back into that atypical AN population too. Hard for us to get them to meet criteria sometimes per the current definition. So I'm challenging Megan to come up with a new definition that incorporates all our patients. She doesn't like and that. And in the outpatient world, we often see patients with atypical anorexia before they've even been to residential treatment or anything like that. So we might be the first ones that really get to help them, but it's not always obvious. You know, we don't have the high tech things that y'all will have in the hospital. What could, what would you tell an outpatient dietitian to look for in those situations? Again, I mean, as of right now, the best thing we can look for is weight loss. We're actually getting ready to look at a bunch of data on acute, trying to look at weight suppression. So the highest weight they've ever been and weight disruption, kind of the rate of weight loss over the last year or so, and seeing how that correlates with a lot of the different medical conditions that can pop up. Anecdotally, we're seeing that the patients who have a higher baseline weight tend to gain weight a little bit quicker. Again, we'll see if the data actually supports that. We're seeing that a lot of these medical conditions we run into with our you know, typical AN patients seem to play out with the atypical ANs too, based on kind of a preliminary look at this data. So, you know, if this data shows what I'm hoping it does, we might have some more look at their heart rates, look at these sort of levels, look at these parameters. And that in itself can be a sort of a correlate for what you're asking, I think. What about... I'm thinking, I keep going back to bones and Dr. Mailer and I, I think a long time ago connected on our passion for bones. (laughs) (laughs) I'm, I'm wondering if there's, are you doing any, any looking at, or do you have any opinions on if you could utilize the DEXA scan in some way to correlate that with malnutrition or a fat-free mass index, or just something from that DEXA scan results that that is a little bit more telling than just a weight. There was probably quite a while ago before I was on acute, they were getting some data looking at that fat-free mass, looking at some of those other DEXA numbers that you get and seeing if that correlated with anything. I don't think it really did. So they kind of stopped looking. Interesting. Don't quote me on that though. And then We are actually trying to consider if we should look at some of these other, you know, like a peripheral DEXA, something that may be easier for a lot of treatment centers to get access to, as opposed to the full size DEXA machine, seeing how that correlates, you know, right now, peripheral DEXAs are FDA approved for monitoring their, you know, bone density on the distal radius. So that forearm bone. Is that something that maybe we could start to look at on a cue? And if that indeed correlates with the uh, AN patients as well, the low-weighted patients, is that something that could perhaps be used in other treatment centers, knowing that those machines aren't terribly expensive? I don't know. So stay tuned because we're still trying to figure all this out and, and, and it is a burgeoning field that we're not getting bored at all. And I I have to shift to something you said earlier about interoception. You're a medical doctor. Like, what does that have to do with anything? How do you, you, why is that important? It doesn't from my standpoint. I just think it's Oh yeah, what does it mean? (laughs) So interoception is, I think a good way to look at it is the brains, all the signals that are sent from the body to those kind of middle parts of the brain, how they're interpreted by the brain. So, you know, for someone that has normal interoception, wow, I'm feeling anxious right now. I'm feeling hungry. Um, You know, the different feels from the body 
that can then lead towards motivational states. And again, I think this is something most medical doctors probably aren't interested in. I'm interested in it given that, you know, psychology background, that mental health interest. But we know that eating disorders, their interoception, their ability to recognize those signals from their body are definitely abnormal. How that plays into everything I enjoy, again, may correlate with a lot of these functional GI diseases, Mm -hmm. a lot of these GI symptoms that are very predominant in this population. I don't know. I think it's also really important, though, especially with the hunger cues, because a lot of patients will say, well, I'm not hungry and I want to be and I want to eat intuitively. And so I'm following my hunger cues. But then you have to realize that if you don't have appropriate interoception, you might not have appropriate cues. So you can't trust them. So I think that's important. That can be one of those screening questions that, that I ask a lot when I'm managing an outpatient world. When they start to get those hunger cues back, that's one of those signs that they are getting more nourished and are towards physical recovery. Absolutely. Whether it's the brain changes, I don't know whether it's some of those hormones, you know, coming back into play, probably a big part of it, but can't say for sure, you know, how much of what. Yeah. I mean, that's what I'm wondering, brain changes or hormones coming back into play or at genetics, genetic predisposition there, all of the above. It's fascinating. Absolutely. And and I'm an intuitive certified intuitive eating counselor too, but also so not everyone has access to hunger cues. So we have to remember that. Absolutely. I mean, for acute, it's rare for our patients to have hunger cues. So it's mm-hmm. just one additional barrier to us with the refeeding process that needs to happen. And so. you mentioned hormones. Are you guys checking any hormone levels on acute? Do you look at leptin levels or do you look at estrogen, testosterone, anything like that? Rarely. So we are getting ready to start a study looking at leptin. And if that does correlate with some of these things we're chatting about, so stay tuned there. We check thyroid hormones, but again, that's just on baseline. It's not really done to check for kind of the purposes of this discussion. We don't really check a lot of other hormones at this point. That would be more for academic or research purposes. Okay. So those aren't necessarily going to inform any of your care. No, because at this level of care, we expect it to be abnormal and not helpful. Yeah. (laughs) I I think that that's the zinc conversation that we had too at when we were at IADEP and it's, we expect that to be normal. I mean, abnormal, sorry. Oh, okay. Yep. And it can affect changes in taste as we know Mm -hmm. with COVID too, that that people were giving zinc, which is a harmless mineral. So it can be, but it may or may not be helping. It's just you know, it does have an effect on taste, which that's an interesting thing that Dr. Mailer and I had a conversation about when he had COVID was, you know, he, he had to go through some therapies to really just be able to eat again as, and, and he's, he doesn't have an eating disorder. So this was happening all around and it just really made the eating disorder cohort, it made it more difficult for them. Yep. Absolutely. Do you guys automatically supplement when they get to acute with certain vitamins, minerals? Just a basic multivitamin would give them thiamine for the first 10 days. And even that's kind of an interesting question because, you know, I suspect we have a lot more Wernicke's thiamine deficiency in anorexia than we've historically realized. I think there's only been one study looking at this and the 
thiamine lab test they use is considered outdated now. So we don't supplement otherwise with, you know, zinc. If we have a concern about that abnormal taste, that dyskesia, we will check a zinc level and a flow supplement them. But yeah, basically just a multivitamin the thiamine. And I sell Wernicke's in residency for my eating disorder. Did you? Isn't that attached to, I'm, I mean, this goes way back. I'm trying to dig back into the, the brain cells, but was that alcohol withdrawal? Yeah. You're shaking your heads. Yes. It's encephalopathy. encephalopathy. Alcoholism is the big one that that's associated with. Yeah. I suspect we've actually had a couple cases of seizures on acute related to Wernicke's encephalopathy, which hasn't mm-hmm. historically been described. So mm-hmm. I think, again, it is one of those things that is just poorly studied and much more prevalent in our population than what we realize. And to just clarify, in case any listeners don't know, that is when you have a thiamine deficiency severely where it causes inflammation of the brain and complications. Yes, thank you. Well, I want to say before we wrap things up, it's a acute is such y'all are such like top dogs. It's a bit intimidating to refer to y'all. So I just want to say to anybody listening, it is the most painless process I have ever been through. Y'all respond immediately. Like I've never had faster email responses. You just like take it and run with it. It's so, so easier, way easier than I would have expected. So I do, I was like very scared at first. I'm like, I don't want to be the girl who cries wolf. And like, they're going to think I'm so dumb for doing this and not, that's not the process. Oh no, please don't ever be intimidated. Please do reach out. Yeah. We try to review them very quickly. I'm happy to reach out and chat with anyone, you know, one-to-one if you have specific concerns or want to understand our thought process, please don't be intimidated. Please do reach out if you have any fears or concerns about your patient care. And I'll echo that too, just when we've had some complications on the floor at our hospital and needed some medical guidance, we've reached out to Acute and you guys have been so helpful just to help us for a phone consult to manage some of those difficult cases. Love it. Appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's great. But I do have a wrap up question for you. It's a bit loaded, so take your time. Oh boy. If you were to take yourself back to entering the field of eating disorders, what do you wish you would have known then that you do know now? That is a loaded question. What I was getting myself into. <laughs> I and mean, I mean that in a good way. I think, you know, when I first started this again, you just, you, you hear all these concerns that, you know, this is a very difficult population to treat. You know, the data shows that this is a very difficult to treat illness, long duration. Oftentimes you're going in and out of treatment before you get to that point where you're, you know, in remission. So I think that can sometimes be the hardest part, realizing that there's going to be a lot of recidivism and you're going to be seeing patients a lot, but don't ever give up hope. Love it. Thank you so much, Dr. Dennis Gibson, for joining us on this podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you all. Let's lean on each other and learn from each other so we can grow together as professionals in this field of eating disorders. If you want to connect with me for supervision or membership with monthly content, please find me at bethharrell.com professionals.